Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. This is City Lights. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzis. Thank you for listening. Coming up, City Lights producer Summer Evans gets details on this year's She ATL Summer Theater Festival. And then later, we'll find out if we still believe in magic with Atlanta Magic Theater's Peter Morrison. But first, Atlanta-based comedian Katherine Blanford likes to say she's the golden retriever of comedy. Full of energy, warmth, and self-deprecating humor, she's open for comics like Jeff Foxworthy, David Spade, and most recently, Dimitri Martin. Earlier this month, she made her television debut on The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon in support of her new comedy album, Salt Daddy. When the comedian recently joined City Lights host Lois Reitzis, she began by explaining her unusual path into comedy. I didn't grow up a huge comedy fan. My parents weren't gathered around the TV for to watch Saturday Night Live or anything. I randomly was in a sorority in the University of South Carolina, just doing the typical Southern girl thing. And every sorority had to enter in a girl into this kind of pageant contest. And I didn't have any typical talents. I, I couldn't dance. I couldn't sing or anything. So I decided to do a monologue as Chelsea Handler, because at the time she had her show Chelsea Lately out there. And uh, I ended up roasting a lot of the fraternity guys there. And I won. And I was like, what was that? Was that comedy? Ever since that, and it was in the back of my head that I was like, I wanted to try that again. So I had moved to Atlanta. I took a class at the Improv uh, down. It was in Buckhead. After I took the class that closed down six months later, I don't know if that was my fault or not. Uh, but I, yeah, and then I just got the bug after and I, I was hooked and I've been doing it for eight years now. So how did you find your voice or as they say in comedy, your shtick? Yeah, I figured out the things that I found so fun to talk about on stage was myself. And I just realized I'm not, necessarily a political comic or a one-liner comic I just started telling stories uh, about my life and my situations and kind of turned honest confessions into a bit and realized that that was what I was good at so really I mean as as long as I keep I keep being like I keep calling every other part of my life besides doing comedy as just field work 
I go out there, I have experiences, I jot them down, and I bring them back to the stage and tell stories about them. Oh. How do you mine your Southern background in your stand-up? So I talk a lot about my family and growing up. I have a bit that kind of caught on on the internet uh, about how I did find out my parents were cousins and how the trouble I had with it is that I wish I would have known younger. You know, I would have had something cool to say back in the day. <laughs> but yeah, I love talking about my Southern upbringing and I've lived in, I'm pretty sure every other state in the Southeast. And it's fun now because I'm going on the road a lot more and I'm going up to New York and LA and, and the Midwest states. And I've always lived in the Southeast and I've always figured that this is the normal way of life. And I go up there and I tell stories and it's, it, it just blows people away. And it's, it's fun to realize that there's a lot of people that a ton of people who have totally different walks of life. And so I've realized I'm, I want to do more of that is to highlight my Southern background. So you're providing an important education, a geographical education, if you will, or at least something about the behavior of those of us who live down here. Is there an example you can give us of a difference in audience reaction from a Southern gathering to a Northern audience, a joke you've told, or a line you've delivered that that has landed differently? Oh, yeah. I mean, I'll tell you, even right here in Atlanta, doing a joke, say, in Midtown, ITP, versus doing a joke out in Lawrenceville or OTP can land totally differently. Like the joke I was talking about, my parents being cousins, down here in the South, I do it, and it's, it's an immediate pop. It gets a big laugh because everybody has somewhat of an experience with that or they know somebody who does and it's just kind of a common situation that small towns you know there's not a lot of people to choose from you might have a connection down the family tree I'll I'll do that up north or somewhere and it's more of a gasp (laughs) than a laugh because they're they they couldn't possibly fathom it and it's like look we're all right we got all our fingers and toes hey (laughs) next time you get one of those up north you can mention that Eleanor and Franklin D. Roosevelt were cousins, so there. Oh, I'm adding that to my bit tonight. (laughs) (laughs) How did your dad react when he heard that cousin joke? He kind of did the same thing where he was like, he started going down our family tree and telling me about various other cousins who ended up marrying other cousins and how I had cousins who dated in high school until they figured out they related down the line. So to him, it was like, oh, you think that's cool? Well, let me pull out my notebook. And uh, <laughs> and he liked to double down. I love it. <laughs> I read a description of your persona as, I'm quoting, a human golden retriever presence. Now, as an adoring, longtime human mother of a golden retriever, I think that's a tremendous attribute. But the the line on this, or at least the translation, I think, was supposed to be that you write self-deprecating jokes. Would you talk about that aspect of your comedy? 
Yeah. I mean, I love to not take myself too seriously. I love to poke fun at myself in situations I get in. So a lot of my stories are about how I ended up in a silly situation or an embarrassing situation or just kind of poking fun at the person I am or, or, or the people you surround yourself with in, in a humorous way. It's not in a way to put myself down, but in a way to just not take yourself as seriously. But I am, what I say is a human golden retriever is I always do it and I have a very upbeat, silly persona on stage. I even, when I was doing Fallon the night before, I, we got to run it at the Comedy Cellar and I was working with the booker of Fallon. He you know, worked with stand-up comics for years before we went up for a set. He was like, play it really big you know, this will be for club, but play it like you're doing it for TV. And I went up there and I did it big and I got off stage and he was like, okay, maybe not that big. And I <laughs> I was like, he's, he's used to New York comics, you know, people who, who are, are a little tired and they've maybe grown a bit bitter. And uh, I'm up there in my little Southern eagerness, wagging my tail at every moment. And I think I was his first comic he ever told me to, to play it down. Oh, all the more endearing, just as golden retrievers live for love. Exactly. They're here for it and, and to provide it as well. Sir, you have a podcast with one of your friends, another wonderful comic, Lace Larrabee, and that show is called Cheaties. Would you tell us how you and Lace came up with the idea for the podcast? Of course. Lace had been doing a bit on stage for a while now. I was a newer comic watching her, and it was a bit about she used to date a guy and how she caught him cheating on her. She was going through his phone and found evidence, so she had to scroll, screenshot it, scroll, screenshot, scroll, screenshot, send herself the evidence, go back, delete the pictures, go back, delete the deleted. You get it. Uh, I was dating a guy at the time, you know, I was a little bored, so I decided to go through his phone, a favorite pastime of mine, and uh, <laughs> found some evidence. And the next day, I called her. I was like, pull the lace layer, be a scroll screenshotted, scroll screenshotted. And we were cracking up, and we realized a lot of people have gone through similar situations and have come out the other side. Although it was a hard situation, they've come out the other side better for it and stronger. And so we were like, let's start a podcast. So it's called Cheaties, and we just we interview people with their experience of, of infidelity. I mean, it ranges from people who have high school experiences to well further in their life. And some of them are just hilarious stories. Some of them are much deeper. They range, you know, cheater or cheaty. But we always, we find the humor in it. And then at the end of the episode, we, we come out the other side and we talk about what we learned from it and how we're better. And I, I've, I, it's, it's blown my expectations of what I even thought the podcast could be, but it's been, yeah, it's, it's really, it's helped me grow as a person and it's, it's a cool way to, to find something that everybody can relate to and figure out that even in hard times, you come out stronger, better. Very therapeutic. Yeah. Very therapeutic, <laughs> Catherine. Who have been some of your guests? We have a range. So we've interviewed anybody from another Atlanta comedian who has since 
gone on to do phenomenal things. Uh, Dulce Sloan. Oh, yes, yeah. you know her. Yeah, yeah, she's great. I'm. We have a relationship expert, uh, Jared Freed, on as well. We have up and coming comics who have come on who have stories that were so wild. They ended up sending us news articles linking us to the story afterwards. We've had another Atlanta native who's moved on again to New York and since started her own relationship podcast. We'll call it that for right now. We'll just call it a relationship podcast. It gets a little bit more raunchy than that, but her name is Ashley Hasseltine <laughs> with Girls Gotta Eat podcast. <laughs> so we have big names and then we just have people who call us and, and want to stay anonymous and tell us their stories of dating a man who has three other families and somewhere in Kentucky. <laughs> oh, oh my. I interviewed Dimitri Martin in July ahead of his Variety Playhouse show in which you were the opener, mm -hmm. an amazing opener at that. Would you tell us about your experience opening for his show? Oh, it was so fun and it was so different than opening for any other major act because he is he is so different than any other act. He's so uniquely him and unlike me, who has a lot of energy and is eager for everyone to like her, he just, you know, he's so straightforward and his delivery is so, he's such a great writer that he doesn't need a lot of performance. So it, it was my first theater show where it wasn't a lot of theatrics. Like I've never come on stage without bring up music and a God mic introducing you, but it was in such Dimitri form. He's like, all right, you're just going to walk on and then you do your set and then you walk off and then we'll bring up Dimitri and everybody else has, you know, walk up music and lights changing. And, and, and it was so perfectly Dimitri where you just you just walk in and, and you do you and you deliver and he was so nice he you could tell he's such a scholar of the craft you know he's not really yet there for the fame of it he just really he just loves the the craft of stand-up wow did that laid-back attitude have an impact on you for future shows yeah I think I realized no matter the size of the audience as long as you're yourself and you're confident in being yourself that's the thing people are going to relate to and and they're going to ride with they don't need the big show and and you just have to you just have to be confident in selling yourself I, I i think that's one of my favorite things about him and watching him the name of your comedy album salt daddy comes from the name of the guy who took you and your friends on a yacht excursion in Fort Lauderdale, if you will. Catherine, would you tell us about that experience? Uh, it's one of my favorite stories. And I, he, Salt Daddy has never reached out to me, and I have put this man on Fallon all over my album. <laughs> I really want to know if I've helped him in his, his charter sales. But yeah, we were on a bachelorette trip, and... We found him on Craigslist and he took us on a boat out into the ocean. And my favorite part about is the bit is in the beginning, we were loving the attention we were getting from him. 
one of my favorite jokes is, you know, he was pouring his drinks and playing his music and we were doing what good little white girls are supposed to do. We were twerking to Tim McGraw <laughs> and we were feeling really cute. We saw that he was taking a lot of videos and then the true story. And as soon as we got out to the ocean, this, this other boat pulled up and it was full of these like very voluptuous, gorgeous women and salt daddy got on their boat and uh <laughs> and it was the first time we realized that we might not be as hot as we thought we were oh how humbling <laughs> right so his name is a bit of a play on sugar daddy did he make an offer no that was the best part i in the original joke he gets on their boat and i say you know, I go, the worst part about playing kidnap is when your captor's like, hey, actually, I got someone else. You're good to go. <laughs> it, I just, I had to do the joke on Fallon. And would you believe it? NBC said we couldn't say kidnap. So I had to switch the joke around. But yeah, after. Wait, wait, wait. You couldn't say kidnap? No, can't say kidnap. Couldn't, I couldn't <gasps> even, I couldn't even like skirt around the word. I couldn't even say, man, what did I try? I tried taking, <laughs> I've tried I tried abduction, pretend abduction, but they said skirt all the way around it. So I flipped the joke up and I ended up just rewriting some callbacks to earlier bits on foul. And I actually, it was, it ended up being, I was the thing I was most proud of is that I was able to rewrite a joke in a week and delivered on national television and it still hit really hard. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. Such sensitivity. Um, Oh yeah. I guess... That's important that words still have such power. Although reading the news, you wouldn't think so. But Salt Daddy has been a huge success now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it was definitely one of my first bits that really started to hit. And I realized that this is kind of what I should concentrate on and doing is telling stories about my life and highlighting the hilarious maybe embarrassing parts of it but yeah it's the the album went number one on itunes it has exponential streams i i never thought that i'd be promoting it on jimmy fallon i never thought saul daddy would be coming out of his mouth but (laughs) yeah it's really taken off Atlanta-based comedian Katherine Blanford. Her new comedy album is Salt Daddy, and it's available now on Apple Music and Pandora. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, City Lights producer Summer Evans catches up with the creatives behind the She ATL Summer Theater Festival. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. 
For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzes, and it is great to have you along. She NYC Arts was founded in 2015 with a mission to elevate women and gender marginalized artists in their journeys to becoming playwrights. Each summer, they produce a theater festival in several major cities around the U.S., one of those being Atlanta. She ATL Summer Theater Festival opens tomorrow evening, August 18th, and runs through the 28th. They'll present four full-length plays, and City Lights producer Summer Evans recently spoke via Zoom with the co-executive producers Erica Miranda and Caitlin Hardgraves, and they were also joined by one of this year's playwrights, Sarah Jean Francois. Erica began by talking about the importance of having a space for gender marginalized creatives. It's because for so long, so many perspectives have been blocked out, Uh, whether or not it's intentional or not. There's so many perspectives and stories that haven't been seen, heard, or felt across our stages um, across the U.S. And it's it's time that we that we share a light and that we we give them a platform because their impact is huge. And what better way than to have the people who are voicing their their projects through these scripts be the ones that have producing uh, power and have a say in how they want it staged and who they want to be a part of it. And that also elevates so many different artists, you know, what's really special is, is seeing how you elevate the, the voice of a playwright, but then in doing so, you elevate des- designers and actors, directors, and you have a whole team who is just full of life and art and talent and just needing the space to let it shine. I know the festival is called SheATL, but this is open to people of all genders, right? Correct. Yes. And um, over the past couple of years, we've seen um, all of, of those identities represented on, on stage this, this year as well. Caitlin, can you walk us through the selection process for those who submit their application for consideration into the festival? So we open up submissions in typically November, and we're asking um, artists, playwrights uh, from from all over the country, really. Uh, We started out our first year just asking artists in Georgia and then have since expanded it across the country to submit their plays and they're submitting a blind copy of their play so that we, Erica and myself, can distribute those out to several different readers, volunteer readers who fill out a rubric, a form, and give us feedback. And from there, we just kind of start reading and rereading and rereading again and getting as many different voices and opinions as we can about these various plays. So our submissions have grown a lot over the past three years since we've expanded the festival into Atlanta. We started out, I think, with about 20 or so submissions. This year, we saw well over 60 submissions. So it was a whole lot of reading and a whole lot of help from our volunteers, which are theater artists from all over Atlanta. Okay, so what does She ATL provide and what is expected from the playwright themselves once they're selected? 
Yeah, it varies from city to city, but the the basis of of the organization is to provide mentorship and support. So these playwrights don't have to carry the the brunt of, you know, a full production, because again, the focus is to get their work out there. So what we've focused on in Atlanta is providing space, when possible, providing rehearsal space. We provide all of the tools that make a, the night of a production. So that's box office, tech, sound designer, lighting designer. This year we've, we've hired intimacy coordinators. We also provide a small stipend for the shows, all in order to give the playwrights an opportunity to focus on the creative. Because what ends up happening is they still, you know, they still have to produce their show, right? And, and learn what that means and learn how to do that. So there's a lot on their plate. And typically what ends up happening is, is they have to wear multiple hats. So we say, how can we take all the technical aspects, maybe some of the organizational aspects away from you so you can focus on putting your show up for what is for most playwrights the first time, maybe there's a couple with, with an exception to that, but how can you focus on the next stage of your particular process with this particular piece? So we do, we do our best to provide most of that. Yeah, man, that is extremely helpful for someone that's starting out in this business, uh, an emerging playwright. It also allows for for the artists, as, as Erica was saying, to really hone in on, on what they need out of this process, because we're having a lot of writers at different stages with their plays. So in this season, for example, we've got some writers who have had experience um, showing this play, though maybe it's not quite ready and they're they're kind of, you know, inching closer and closer to what the finished product might be. And then we've got other writers who are presenting this work for the very first time in this kind of form. So what we want to do is allow for enough structure and yet enough flexibility that the playwright is really able to, to hone in on whatever they need to out of this process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Sarah Jean, you were one of the lucky playwrights who were selected to be in this festival this year. Would you give us a synopsis of your play, Sister Braid My Hair? Absolutely. So Sister Braid My Hair is stemming from a new myth that I'm creating. There are four sisters who are trapped in a frame and they exist as living figures in a moving tableau. They find ways to escape the confines of the frame to experience what real world is like, what life in the real world is like, and what they find is, you know, that it it isn't as, well, my tagline is it isn't as pretty as their picture. So they get to see the complexities of what it's like out in the real world versus the beauty in their their framed existence. And I read that you drew inspiration from painters like Monica Stewart and choreographers like Catherine Dunham. For those who are unfamiliar with Monica Stewart's paintings, would you describe what they look like and how that was translated onto the stage for this play? What Monica Stewart's works highlight are like the female figure, the Black female figure. So, you know, our curves, the sensuality, and I do believe it is so exquisitely shown on stage with this beautiful cast. The director found various ways to explore that as well as the Catherine Dunham aspect of it, there are ballets inside the, the play. So they get a chance to explore movement in that world. Wow, that sounds so beautiful. That's a really neat concept. Thank you. 
I also read that this play pays homage to African hair braiding. And what I think is just so fascinating when I was researching was just the historical context behind African hair braiding and just how innovative it was for both survival and as an art form. Would you tell our listeners a little bit more about the origins of hair braiding and how that inspired this play? Well, what's inspiring me is how my ancestors were able to use hair braiding to survive by braiding seeds into their hair for the middle passage to see, make sure that their children had food to sustain them as little as it was, it was something or using their braids as maps once they arrived in the Americas to escape to freedom. And what inspired me is the conversations that occur in these moments of intimacy and hair braiding, the knowledge and wisdom that's passed down in the act of communion. It's really quite moving to see a Black woman's elevation in her culture as she becomes a braider or, you know, the go-to coiffeurs. It's an incredible honor. And it's like you're a head elder in a sort of way. Mm. Wow, that's really fascinating. And I thought it was cool how it's like a communication tool, like you said. It Mm -hmm. created like a map on people's head to show them how to escape. I mean, wow, the innovation, the intellect is just amazing. It's beautiful. Erica or Caitlin, would you discuss the three other full-length plays that will be showcased at SHEATL Fest? Of course. I, w- I want to say really quickly that I think all four of these uh, shows have done a really beautiful job with using specific tactics with movement or language to really bring out um, some really special stories. But To Serve the Hive by Julia Byrne. So Julia has given an exploration of climate change and uh, political turmoil in this script by by personifying uh, a hive and what happens when when there's no food for the hive and, and the bees have to figure out in a quite challenging way how to survive. We then have Walls by Sofia Palmero. So this is a really uh, awesome exploration of relationships and boundaries and pushing each other into, into boundaries and out of boundaries by the walls that separate them. And then finally, we have Your Weirdo Annie Best by Erin Shea Brady. And Annie Best is a writer living in Chicago, queer, polyamorous, recently estranged from family and at a creative standstill. When one of Annie's partners convinces her to dive into the world of Nora Ephron's great romantic comedies, she begins to see her life through Ephron's lens. Uh, So Erin does a really good job of kind of breaking the mold and and, uh, shedding a really positive light to those perspectives and and relationships. Mm, Such a wide range you guys have offered at this year's festival. It's so fun. We're so, so grateful and happy with it. Yeah, each show is so individual and uh, not just in their writing style, but in their in the way that they're being staged. So I think we're giving Atlanta audiences an opportunity to engage with something that maybe you're not going to find so easily at any other Atlanta theater. Sarah Jean, how has this experience working with SheATL given you a better picture into this business? I come from a world of chaos and confusion, wearing multiple hats. And that can be really overwhelming. For example, this last run of the show, I I was in it, I wrote it, I was directing it, I had to make cue sheets, I had 
you know, a, a production manager, but we shared the load. So between the two of us, we put a show together and we put it up. That was for the fringe. But this, this experience gives me a moment to sit back and see what the play is doing, how it's interacting with the actors and what it's doing to them with language and with movement. It's incredible to just have the bandwidth for that, you know, just to be able to focus on what it's doing at this stage. I'm really happy with the way it's developing. It's a great system of support for early career artists. And I'm really grateful to have been a part of it. Mm, That's awesome. You get to finally enjoy the fruits of your labor. (laughs) To a degree. I mean, I still have to do rewrites, but it's so revelatory to be able to just see what it's doing and to go from there. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. When you guys select these plays each year at the festival, how does diversity inclusion factor into the the selection process? I would say it's it's very high up on our list. You know, one of the main goals we have as a theater company is to reflect the community that we're in and Atlanta is such a richly diverse city. So we would really be doing ourselves an incredible injustice if we if we didn't reflect that through the playwrights that we have. And in our submissions, we we have a very diverse group of submissions. So we're, we're really grateful that we're able to reflect that and that we're able to present the richness of all these different cultures. You know, just the first time that I read Sister Braid My Hair, I learned so much um, as as you both were were talking about with with African hair braiding and the traditions that come with it. When I read Erin Shea Brady's um, Your Weirdo Annie Best, I learned so much about the polyamorous community. So, I mean, each play offers a different voice, a different community, a different connection, and those communities are reflected here. So. Yeah, and I I would just add that I think each year we're getting better and we're growing with how we approach that. And I think one of the main things that we've also learned is kind of matching that same diversity inclusion on our on our mentorship teams and on our production staff, so that there's someone on the other side of the stage of the actors who who might be able to reflect their same experiences and provide support in that way. We didn't mention it before, but each team has a a mentor assigned to them to kind of help them throughout the process in whatever way is is best suited. And I think that we grow with more clarity on on how to provide that support and to be conscious of those decisions with each year. She ATL co-executive producers Erica Miranda and Caitlin Hardgraves. They were joined by one of this year's playwrights, Sarah Jean Francois. She ATL Summer Theater Festival runs tomorrow evening through August 28th at the Schwartz Performing Arts Center on the Emory University campus. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, we'll dive into a world of illusion and wonder with magician Peter Morrison. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. From Harry Houdini to David Copperfield to Penn and Teller, great performers have always had us asking, do we believe in magic? Well, the answer may be at the Atlanta Magic Theater, home to magician Peter Morrison. 
I caught a show last year back in November, and he and I had a chance to discuss all things magic, and he began by explaining how one becomes a professional magician. Well, you know, we're just born magic. That's how it works. (laughs) (laughs) I like that answer. I wish it were so simple. You know, I always make the analogy. So someone decides to start playing the guitar and some people play the guitar and they play it once a week. And then there's others that play the guitar and they take lessons and then they play like, you know, five hours a day. (laughs) So magic is is very similar to any other performing art um, that takes technical skill. You know, I started at a very young age. I was doing shows when I was 10, 11, 12 years old. And then I did take a very long break. I um, stopped doing it for probably about, gosh, close to 15 years. And then I met my wife and she worked at a church and um, said, oh, didn't you used to, you know, do this magic thing? Wouldn't it be fun for you to perform for these um, kids at this youth group? And I said, you know, that'd be great. So I brought a couple of things in. And it just was like a magic wand hit me. And I said, wow, you know, I really love doing this. And that's what kind of re-sparked it. And from there, did you have a regular full-time job that you abandoned for magic? Or did you just start tiptoeing back then? I, 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 like, I like how you said that. <laughs> I did. I, I was actually a uh, corporate sales manager. So I worked for automatic data processing, was a you know district manager of sales, but I went in pretty big time. I mean, I was literally, you know, waking up extra early in the morning so I could practice before I went to work. Uh, And then with being in sales, I literally became known as kind of like the magic guy. So I would go around performing for all my clients. I'd perform in the office. It was, and then I'd get off work and I'd rush home and I'd practice till midnight. I literally became completely immersed in rehearsing practice and performance And that went on for, I'm going to guess it was probably about three or four years before I made a decision to literally just quit and uh, with no big prospects on the horizon, mind you. What was that like? Well, I have a friend of mine um, who had been on The Tonight Show multiple times. And, you know, he said to me, he goes, look, I understand that you think that you'll make this smooth transition. You know, you'll eventually feel that you're busy enough to make it a career. He goes, but if you don't, just do it. If you don't just go for it 100%, it will never happen. And I think that was sound advice. And I'd also say that, you know, it's got to be a absolute passion to make that kind of a choice because you're never going to want to put in the hard work. It is not an easy field. Uh, anything in performing arts is not easy as you, you probably can relate. And um, I just decided to do it. And I'm so glad I did it. And it took years to get back to that level of income. And then I've exceeded that now. So, but it took years. It was not a, you know, one year, two year, three, it was a a decade, you know? (laughs) Right. Right. Did you apprentice under anyone or are you completely self-taught? Mostly self-taught. However, in the magic community, there are, you know, associations like the Society of American Magicians, the International Brotherhood of Magicians, which was started by uh, Harry Houdini. There are uh, seminars, workshops, uh, and I did them all. I mean, I was very, very involved, particularly during that decade of just kind of establishing my skill my and, you know, looking for feedback and all that stuff. Wow. Well, it's paid off. You are incredible at what you do, and you're a great performer. You have a very 
natural way of connecting with your audience and making people feel at ease. And one of the things that I really enjoyed learning about your show when I went was you have a moment, uh, let's call it pre-show, where you do some very up-close tricks with people as they start to arrive at the theater. Is there a different momentum that you have to take when you start performing for people when they are, you know, within a hand's distance of you? Yeah, so it's a great question. I, um, the reason I have a pre-show, there's, there's several reasons. When people come up, you know, it's very, very conversational during that opening when I'm meeting people and performing the close-up magic at the table. It also is really one of my strengths. So two things, you know, being able to connect with people, but also being very, very good at um, sleight of hand magic. And so people see this and they go, wow, okay, you know, so I already like him. And oh my gosh, I cannot believe that he just did something inches away from me. So you set a tone where really now you already have won them over before you begin your main performance. And, and now, I mean, now there's 10, 15 feet between me and the audience. And so it's technically easier in many ways, but beyond anything else, it is a performance. And um, you could have all the coolest tricks in the world, but you really need to be able to have great storytelling and make it interesting and, you know, engage the audience where they feel like they're part of a show versus just watching a show. Yeah. One of the hesitations that I hear from friends when they're like, I don't think I like magic. I think there's this inherent thing where people don't want to feel foolish Correct. and a magician can make you feel like you don't know something that they know. Mm -hmm. I was so impressed. You told the story as though you had been the one that was fooled one day. Correct. And let me tell you about this other magician that I met in New York once and how he kind of pulled one over on me. And while you're doing so, you're actually performing this amazing trick. What a wonderful way to connect with people. I appreciate that. And you mentioned a really great point is that many people really think, and I understand why actually, that magician's job is to fool you and to make you look foolish. You know, look how smooth and slick I am while I pulled one over on you and aren't you a dummy for not seeing how I did it, right? That is absolutely not what I do. I, I always say when I meet, you know, I have a group of people say, you know, this is our circle of fun. So I'm here just to show you a talent. I'm here to have fun with you. I'll have stories like that, as you mentioned, where, you know, I'm not the only one. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, there's a lot of uh, magic out there where it really is, ha ha, you know, look at me, look what I did to you. And I've never had that tactic. I just don't like it. I think it does make people, uh, it reinforces what you said. It just makes them feel like, oh, okay, see, this is why I don't like magic because I'm made to feel like an idiot. <laughs> you know? right. right. Which is just so, so far from what I'm trying to do. I'm just trying to have I'm trying to unlock the inner child in people. That is exactly why I do what I do. That's really cool. Well, let's talk about some of the magic tricks that you perform. To start out, can miracles, you give a, a Miracles, Kim. Miracles, sorry. <laughs> Hallelujah, miracles. What is the difference between magic and illusions? So magic and illusion are really synonymous. Um, now, there are different categories of magic. So you have grand illusion. That would be like David Copperfield. You have close-up magic, like I do in the pre-show. There's mentalism where you're guessing or, you know, in theory, you know, you're playing the part of someone who can actually read minds, right? So 
many people think, of course, illusion, we know the word, it's not real. Then they hear the word magic and they go, ooh, magic, you know, this is like real, you know, and it's like, no, if you actually looked up the definition of magic, it's the, an actor playing the role of performing things that are impossible, right? It's, it's an act, but think of illusion. I think more of like uh, the billiard balls in the show or something like that, where it's more mystical looking, you know, and captivating and just kind of a little more grand. That is one of the more old school parts of the performance. Definitely makes you feel like you could be in the 20s or 30s watching something. Can you describe the billiard balls? And also, how long did it take you to learn how to do that? A very long time. (laughs) So back in the um, turn of the century, so like early 1900s, a magician's skill was kind of based off their ability to do what are called manipulative acts. So you're manipulating objects. Uh, It could be cards, it could be coins, or uh, billiard balls were one of the main mediums. It's something that you don't see done very often. And what I was doing is I tried to research and find something that fit my character. I mean, my whole character in my show, and really in person is very classic. So I mean, I, I don't run away from it. That's just kind of who I am naturally. I tried to find a routine that would be based from that, like you said, the 20s, 30s genre. And there was an amazing magician by the name of Roy Benson, who was back in that era. And Roy Benson performed that routine that you saw on my show for decades. It was his closing to his performance. And then he gave that performance to a magician when he retired named Alan Wakeling. And Alan Wakeling wouldn't be a name that you would know off the offhand. However, you would absolutely know what he created, which was sawing a woman in half. Mm. So Alan Wakeling was one that took that to what's called a uh, thin sawing a woman in half, where they have a very, you know, box where she barely fits in it and he saws the woman in half. And it's probably one of the best versions ever done. It involves the audience being on stage while this is being done. It's incredible. So he was a real thinker in the world of magic. And so there was a book written about him where it showcased and talked about in detail, step-by-step how the routine was done. And so I saw that and I got very excited because you know he was wearing the tuxedo, he had that same look as myself. I go, I bet this would be perfect. So then the challenge with any routine is uh, that's choreographed would be what music do you pick? So I listened to thousands of songs and I, I'm a musician as well. So I really like music and I go, you know, okay, this is the one. And it was that beautiful, a piece from uh, Kyoko Matsui, who is a classic yet kind of new new age pianist. And it was just incredible. And, and I then choreographed the routine. And it took me probably six to eight years before I actually put it in my show working on it, you know, on a daily basis. Oh, my gosh, that is so long. It, what is a typical time to learn how to do a quote unquote miracle? thank thank you for listening kim (laughs) you're welcome um so i can learn things at a much faster pace now because i have the skill set that took all those years it'd be like a musician who's you know a professional and they have a new song you know they could probably get it down pretty well in a month or two but that'd be working on it every day and then to really master it you know probably six months to a year to really make an incredible a couple of years three four years so it really depends i mean on what the routine is, uh, if it requires technical skill that I don't have, uh, then it would take, you know, much longer. Wow. So when you got your start, you were not 
in Atlanta. Atlanta is a newer town for you. Can you tell me about your start in California? Sure. Um, so I'm a native Californian. was born in San Francisco. And the experience I had there was great because you have all of these tech companies. And it's a great place to be a magician because there are very few magicians in the world. And there's even fewer that are very talented. So you have you know, I competed with maybe five guys in the Bay Area. We all became friends. However, I, I started looking at the reality of my life, which was that I was going to constantly be unemployed until someone hires me. <laughs> and then I started thinking about if I really wanted to take my show to a new level, you know, wouldn't it be great to have some kind of a venue? And I started doing public shows where I would collaborate with either a restaurant or a small venue. And then I started promoting and selling, you know, tickets to these shows. And, and that was going relatively well. In 2009, I was able to meet a fellow who had a place in San Francisco that had a vacant building, basically. I mean, you know, they connected, but it was a vacant space that was an old speakeasy. Oh, cool. And, you know, he said, uh, I've heard about you from my uncle. I've now seen your show because he happened to be working at this restaurant. And he goes, this is really cool. He goes, you know, I think you could do something with this place because it's really unique. Um, he said, it's very spooky, you know, because it was, you know, <laughs> you, you go down this, this stairwell and it was really uh, mystical looking and had tin ceilings. I mean, just incredible. So I uh, decided to go for it. Now, timing wise, 2009, my bookings were off 65% because of the recession. And I had no money and I'm like, okay, how am I going to open a theater? So I had this one credit card that had zero balance on it, but also had this incredibly low interest rate. Talked to my wife and I said, sweetie, I, I, this is it. This is my shot one time. And so I, uh, I maxed out the credit card, $38,000 and I had no money in my bank. I mean, it was just right on the verge of bankruptcy, honestly, and opened this place in San Francisco and no one knew who I was in the world outside of, uh, you know, some clients. And I spent the first year of that theater standing on Union Square, 10, 12 hours a day, six days a week, promoting my show in person. And oh. about a year into it, this guy came up. He said, you know, I've heard of your show. And I go, you have? Oh, I'm so glad, you know, <laughs> was it from a friend? <laughs> and he goes, no, no, no. He goes, do you realize that you are like one of the top rated things to do in San Francisco on TripAdvisor. I go, I had no idea. I was there for six and a half years. And by the time I left, I was the number one rated thing to do in the city out of like 3000 things and had thousands and thousands of reviews online about the show. And it was just amazing to go from literally eking by where I made zero, I mean, no money to where it was like sold out every show seven shows a week, you know, it was just amazing. What a wonderful success story. And then what brought you to Atlanta? I always give people the same answer and I'll give it to you. God brought us to Georgia. Seven shows a week's a lot. I mean, it really yeah. is taxing. And also more importantly, my wife's from the South and um, there's a, there's kind of a general flavor of entitlement in the Bay area. You know, everyone's a millionaire basically. And um, I just said, you know, maybe there's a better place to raise my family. And what have I not done here? And I go, you know what? I should do a heartfelt prayer about this. I got on my hands and knees, said, God, if it's meant for me to leave, show me a sign. And the very same day that I prayed that prayer, a guy from Georgia came to my show and said, how would you like to bring your show to Georgia? 
And what was his inspiration to ask? He had a theater in Georgia and, and thought it would be great. And a week later, I was in Georgia looking at the theater. It wasn't uh, necessarily the end all as far as like where I thought I'd be forever, but it was a great launching point for us to get here. You know, I built the brand starting there and then um, now have my new situation with the uh, Embassy Suites. Well, let's talk about that setup a little bit. It's a very intimate room. Did you do the build out yourself? I've always done things the old fashioned way. I, I've learned how to do them myself because, <laughs> um, you know, you can spend a lot of money or you can learn how to do it yourself. I um, obviously designed the theater in San Francisco, which was really intricate. And so I learned all about, you know, sound and lighting. And so what we did in the embassy suites was build a structure within a, within the room. Atlanta Magic Theater's Peter Morrison. The theater is located in the Centennial Park Embassy Suites and shows are every Friday and Saturday night. More information is available on our website, wabe.org. You've been listening to City Lights on WABE, our daily exploration of art and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., we'll hear about Art in the Paint, the organization that aims to beautify and revitalize decaying basketball courts. Plus, author Caitlin Monroe Howes shares the incredible real-life experience that inspired her new sci-fi novel, The Awoken. If you missed part of today's show, you could catch up on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. There you'll find all of our recent stories and you can listen to City Lights on your own schedule. City Lights host and executive producer is Lois Reitzes. Summer Evans is our producer and our engineer is Shelly Canavy. I'm senior producer Kim Drobes and we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. We are at WABE City Lights on both Facebook and Instagram and you can follow Lois on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org donate and become a member right now. And thank you.